Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. A lot of you know that in addition to this podcast, I'm also the co-founder and co-publisher of Brick and Elm Magazine. This week, we are finalizing our March-April issue. It's our annual home issue, and I'm really excited about this one. I know a lot of listeners mentioned to me that they buy every issue of the magazine at Market Street, or they always pick one up at Burrowing Owl, and I love that. Thank you. That's great. But here's a tip. If you subscribe to the print magazine at brickandelm.com, you'll save a couple of bucks per issue, and we'll deliver it right to your home or office. So consider a print subscription, especially if you're buying every issue on newsstands. Anyway, as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Rush Eye Associates online at rushlasik.com. Today's guest is Rachel Flores, who is the executive director of the Amarillo Art Institute, which is an organization that offers art instruction workshops and classes in a variety of different mediums at Arts in the Sunset. Now, Rachel arrived here in 2015 from Lubbock, and she quickly took on a leadership role within Amarillo's art scene with the help of Ann Crouch, who at the time was the proprietor of Arts in the Sunset. A lot of listeners may know that Ann Crouch passed away in early 2017, and that left Arts in the Sunset, the city's largest art gallery, the largest collection of studios. It left that place in a state of turmoil. And so in the years since, as things have stabilized, Rachel has become a driving force in helping revitalize this former mall to realize Anne's original vision. And Sunset Art Center is on the cusp right now of a big reopening. So we talk about all that stuff. Here's Rachel Flores. Rachel Flores, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to have you. I'm glad you're here. And I want to start with you the same way that I start with all my guests. And that's just to ask why you are here. Like what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? So I'm from here and uh, I grew up a little bit outside of town. I went to Bushland and then Tascosa and uh, went to Texas Tech in Lubbock. And I stayed in Lubbock for, I guess I lived there about eight, eight and a half years and uh, really enjoyed it there. It, there's something to be said for being in a place that you didn't grow up in, mm-hmm. and you get to just be an adult there, and that's kind of nice. But um, Lubbock's close enough that if you need to go right. back home and be a kid, you can do that yes. too, right? Yeah, and so then my husband and I, who he is also from here, we had our son was 18 months old, and we had some fam- like parents got divorced, my sister moved back, and we just decided we wanted to be closer to our family and kind of scoured the entire city for jobs and found one that brought me here. And it was at the Amarillo Art Institute. And so, okay, so that was that, that was, was what job. brought me to Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Back. Mm-hmm. What did you want to do like when you left here to go to tech? What was the plan? So I graduated with a degree in advertising. Um, I realized my senior year of college that I wasn't really crazy about the cutthroat like environment of ad agencies, mm-hmm. which of course also when you're in college, you're kind of taught that that's the only thing you can do. And so before I ended my senior year, I did an internship with a nonprofit called the Volunteer Center of Lubbock. And I loved it. It was a marketing internship. So I still got to do advertising related things, but I was helping people. And I kind of thought this might be the way that I want to hmm. use my degree. And so I applied, they had a job available and I applied for it and got it. Um, 
and I actually started before I graduated college and it was the best experience. I know it's not the most common experience people have in nonprofit, but I had a wonderful boss who was a mentor who cared about growing leaders. And so the Volunteer Center, just to kind of explain what it is, it partnered with about 120 nonprofit agencies in Lubbock. It was a nonprofit management assistance center. So they did workshops on grant writing okay. and fundraising, really supporting the nonprofits. And then they helped them find volunteers and post job opportunities and different things like that. So we did kind of both things. So I learned a lot about like leadership development, high performing teams, um, how to write grants, mm -hmm. all the things that you kind of need to know for running a nonprofit. And I kind of grew, I, I was there five years. So my last position there was the director of operations. And I had expressed to my executive director that I kind of wanted that career path. And uh, she just taught me everything that she could. And when this job came available to be an ED for a significantly smaller organization, mm -hmm. she said, you should go for it. And um, I'm glad she did because it's been a crazy ride, but... Yeah. So that that sounds to me like the role you ended up in, not just here, but there in Lubbock, was more of an administrative role as as a an ED level type role. Like, um, it's not all marketing a nonprofit. Right. It's not all grant writing. Like, there's a lot of different mm -hmm. parts of it. Like, did you find that 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 was something that fit well with your personality? So I think that. I'm one of those people that if I don't know how to do something, I want to learn how to do it mm -hmm. for the most part. So I learned that I loved budgeting and reading financial <laughs> statements, which is not a normal thing for most people. But some people maybe are born with that yeah. love, but to learn. But I same. learned it and I was like, this is so cool. You could problem solve. You could figure out how to make an organization function. And then I love to write. I love being creative. Um, so that marketing side, the grant writing side, all that stuff, it just was a really good fit for me. And I like staying busy and I like being challenged. So I think just having all those different mixes, I never wanted to be pigeonholed into doing one thing yeah. all the time. And I think that works for a lot of people. Some people have a skill set that that's just, you know, what they want to do. But I kind of like changing my day up every day. So before we talk about what you do now in Amarillo, I want to hear a little bit about growing up in Bushland. Do kids in that position, do you consider yourself an Amarillo resident, or does it feel a little bit separate? We grew up about halfway in between Bushland and Amarillo. So I would say when I was younger, we felt that way. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so we she wasn't super involved in things in Amarillo. She was involved at the school. And then my dad worked for BNSF. He was a conductor. He retired this past year. And so he wasn't really connected to the Amarillo community. I mean, sure, he went downtown to hop on a train yeah. and take it. But then it. he was traveling. But lot, he was right? traveling. He was gone three days at a time. And so it wasn't really like we had a lot of connections into Amarillo. I was really, really happy when, and I, I know a guest that you just had on had the similar thing where we, Bushland hadn't had a high school yet, so we actually got to pick. Right. And um, I have a twin sister, and we both decided we wanted to go to Tascosa, and that was one of the greatest decisions because – you know, our eighth grade class had like 80 kids in it and Tascosa, our freshman class had 900 yeah. kids in it. And it was an exposure to different cultures and different backgrounds. And I I mean, we loved it. Like it was just the best thing that we could have done. So then it helped us really get connected into the Amarillo community during our high school years. Yeah, Bushland's always been an interesting community to me because I, my theory, and I, I haven't ever lived there, um, but is that it, it doesn't quite have the independent mindset that 
I'm from Canyon. I live in yeah. Canyon. You know, they're about the same distance from Amarillo, mm -hmm. at least from from downtown. But um, that's that's interesting yeah. that perspective. I think getting the high school probably played a big role I, in yes. cementing the identity of that. I community. think so too. But I mean, you're talking. They have a gas station now and a pizza place, mm -hmm. and I mean, they're they're getting some more things. But when we were there, there was no place to eat down there. You, I mean, I think the gas station came. Like the one that's right next to Bushland Elementary came when we were already in middle school. So, okay. and it was significantly smaller. I've been, we do art classes on site at schools. So I've been back to teach a few times and it's incredible to me how much it's grown. I mean, it, that place is huge now. So tell me about your experience in Lubbock, just to get an idea of, you know, having grown up, you know, a, a little bit more connected to Amarillo and then moving to a place like uh, Lubbock that has a lot in common with Amarillo, but also has some very significant differences. What was your feel for that city? So I think that um, working, you know, of course, college is kind of its own bubble. So you mm -hmm. don't always really experience the city. But once we graduated and that was really we were work out there working, um, it is very, very similar I think probably the biggest benefit to Lubbock from the nonprofit perspective is you have the college there. So there is a enormous amount of people available for volunteering, okay. for donations. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain because I know we have a university right close to us and a junior college, but the amount of students that pour into that university every year. And you also really notice the difference between summer and the school year. Mm -hmm. I mean... For the most part, if there was a restaurant close to campus, we would not visit it until the summertime, you know, because it was just packed. And so it's definitely a different vibe there. There's a lot less people putting down roots there. So I don't know if that means that some of the relationships are maybe a little more shallow in some mm -hmm. sense. Um, but you do have a lot of people who are maybe starting their careers or just there for college and then they're moving somewhere else. So there's a little bit of that where people aren't setting down roots. People aren't planning to be there for a long time. A lot. Some are. What was your perspective on Amarillo when you first came back here? Like when you started thinking, okay, we're going to move back. I need to find a job. Um, you said that was eight years ago? Seven. Seven, yep. years, ago? seven years ago. So Amarillo's mm -hmm. changed a lot yep. in seven years. Um, can you can you look at where we are now and kind of think about where we came from when you first arrived and got started? Well, I, I will tell you one of the oddest things was I was not used to running into people I knew all the time in Lubbock. And that was kind of took some getting used to. Like you would go to the grocery store now, like in Amarillo, we'd move back. You go to the grocery store, you'd see five people that you right. grew up with or knew and had family connections to. You can't wear your pajama pants to you the cannot. grocery store. Uh, sometimes I do. But... Um, I, it, that was kind of bizarre to me, but at the same time, I will say, you know, moving professionally to a new job where I didn't know a lot of the connections, it, that was incredibly helpful to have already known some people to already be able to say, well, I know this person works here. Maybe they can get me a connection with somebody that can help me in my new role. Um, so that was really nice. A lot of people don't have that. You know, you move to a completely new town and you have to start completely over. Right. And so especially in the nonprofit yes, world, where knowing people is a big part of that. Yes. Yeah. So I think that was good. And I think uh, moving back, there were a lot more local restaurants that were more not just your diners, like there mm -hmm. was a lot more growth in that. And that was really cool to get to come back to. Um, the biggest thing for us was just we when we lived in Lubbock, our family would come visit us a few times every month or every other month. And the amount of like, love we got out of just getting to be a, close to all our people who got to love on our kids. Yeah. And, when you uh, have kids, that's a big it's deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. 
What was the status of the Amarillo Art Institute when you came in as the new director? I imagine that it also has changed. Sure. So um, the organization started in 2004. So when I arrived, I was the, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I think I'm the sixth director to have been at the Institute, which is not a lot of time. Mm, If you consider I came in 2015. Right. Um, I replaced a director who had been gone from the organization for two to three months before I even arrived. So when I got there, um, Ann Crouch, who owns Sunset, gave me her assistant that day to walk through where the keys were, where the lights were, how to run the credit card machine, and then she left. And so fortunately, I had a treasurer on the board at the time who was just the most amazing person that had our finances in check. And she came in and met with me and kind of walked me through a lot of that stuff. But I mean, the computer was just a desktop full of files. And so I spent the better part of the first two months just going through everything. Um, And then I spent an entire year essentially just meeting with every volunteer, every student, every board member to figure out where we were at. I could be a little off on this, but I believe the first year I started, um, our budget was something like $90,000 in revenue. Hmm. So it was a very small organization, highly supported by Sunset and Ann Crouch. And really, it was just had a lot of potential. It just wasn't there yet. For listeners who don't know what Emerald Art Institute is and Mm -hmm. does, give me the broad strokes of the role that the organization plays. So what, I mean, when you came in and you started directing it, what were you directing? So it's a community art school. So it's not accredited. You're not getting college credits for it. Um, It teaches some serious art education. I mean, you are learning very, very important, valuable skills for anybody that wants to become an artist, or even if you're just doing it for fun. So um, it provides ongoing classes. So there are weekly classes that participants come, sit down, take painting, ceramics, encaustic, weaving, all different types of uh, media that you can learn. And then we also provide uh, master artist workshops where you bring in somebody you know, quote unquote famous, who's well known in the art community to come in. It's a little bit more expensive. They teach for two to three days. It's an intensive workshop where you're learning their style Mm -hmm. or a particular medium. Um, And then that was really most of what the Institute did when I arrived. We didn't do a lot of community outreach. As a matter of fact, very, very little community outreach. And that was something that I really wanted to change. But yeah, that's kind of what it is. It's an art school. So was art part of your background growing up? Like, were you an artist? Were you interested in, in I that? loved art as a kid. Actually, the reason I went into advertising was because, as many people my age were told, you can't make any money at art. No, but so graphic designers something. make all the exactly. money, right? Exactly. And so, exactly, right? So um, that's kind of why I went that path. But I love to draw. Um, I would always be sketching family members at uh, events and things like that. So um, I did enjoy it. I wouldn't say I was really fantastic at it. I'd never really taken classes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of what I liked was I didn't have that opportunity to take art classes. And so making that more available for kids that were my age as well as adults, I think was really important. But yeah, I've always loved art. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing when you're hiring somebody to run a nonprofit and the nonprofit is about art. You know, I think a lot of boards might think, okay, we need to get an art person to do mm-hmm. this. But sometimes you bring in somebody who's just 
good at nonprofits yes. and you know you can you can have a lot of impact that you might not have had. Well, I'll tell you that in my interview one of the questions they had is are you an artist? And I said, I love art and I love to do art. I wouldn't not call yeah. myself an artist. And they said, okay, that's good. That's good. We don't we don't need another artist in this position. We just need somebody that really has the business side of right. things. You so. don't necessarily need a tuba player or a violinist to run the yes, symphony. You know? exactly, exactly. Okay, so I know, uh, and, and listeners probably know, that there has been a lot of change and transition at Sunset in the Center, for sure since you arrived. But the most of it occurring after the death of Ann Crouch, mm -hmm. because she was so generous and so much uh, the driving force financially and in every other way yeah. uh, with Sunset Center. So give listeners a little bit of a an idea of sort of what has happened in okay. the past few years. So I'll try to do it as I, short as And I know it's possible. a long story uh, so and complicated. But. It is. It is. But, you know, I've, I've told it enough times I think that I can... Kind of, you can ask questions Okay, it's confusing. But um, so I started, Ann Crouch actually hired me. Um, I worked with her for a, a little over a year um, before she passed away. Okay. And so I did have the chance to know her. She was a, a sustaining board member. She came to every board meeting. I saw her pretty much every day. She was the quirkiest, feistiest, and kindest person and she was so nice to me. So I, I didn't say this, but my first year that I worked there, I actually got pregnant with my second child. And so I had her in October and I was the only staff person. So I actually brought my daughter up starting three weeks old and we just wow. hung out in the office, you know, um, and Anne was incredibly kind and just helpful and all of that. Um, so Anne Crouch passed away January of 2017. So again, for anybody that doesn't know, she she and her husband purchased Sunset Center in the 90s. Um, when her husband passed away, she was an artist, philanthropist, and she decided she wanted to transform Sunset and make it more of an art colony. So she got all of her friends to come in, have galleries. It was a fun happening place. She started the Art Institute and just wonderful. So after she passed, the whole thing kind of went into a state of turmoil she did not have a very solid will in place. Yeah. It was a handwritten will that basically was found in her car. So that takes a while, obviously, to go through probate because, you know, people have to kind of interpret what that means. Since Anne did not have any heirs, that made it a little bit easier. But essentially, for a couple of years, we the Art Institute kind of kept rolling how it was going, and the galleries kind of kept going what they were doing. But her estate and included that building, and yes. so so we're just kind of you all kept going, not really knowing yes. who owned the building you were operating. Yes, in. we had a point where um, he's now actually funny enough, he's the Crouch board president. At the time, he was not. He was one of my volunteers and instructors. And he told me, he said, we really need to inventory everything in this school because if they lock the doors, we got to make sure we can tell them what's ours right. and what is it. So yeah, it was a very tumultuous time. Fortunately, though, it did come out that her will basically established a foundation in her name. And the purpose of the foundation was to keep the project at sunset running. Hmm. It still was not the easiest thing to do. I mean, they brought in a board of directors and fortunately I got to be a liaison for that board. So I got to kind of sit in on those meetings and, and learn a little bit more about what was going on. Um, but they had property. I mean, she had so many properties, so they were trying to liquidate some properties so that, 
Because ultimately, if you're running a nonprofit, you don't need to be running multiple rental properties. So I'm just going to fast forward a little bit. But essentially, the board was trying to get their nonprofit status and it wasn't working. And the IRS kept coming back and saying, you have all these for-profit galleries in Sunset and you just can't do that and be a nonprofit. Um, You're privately benefiting these artists. And we were all like, well, but they're not making all this money Mm -hmm. they're just here and they're being educational and they're being you know public awareness of art that's what we're doing here um and the irs was like no i'm sorry you can't do that so in may of 2019 the board met and had a strategic planning session and i had moved onto the board at that point and at the end of that strategic planning session the board decided that they wanted to for the Crouch Foundation to become a support organization of the Emerald Art Institute. They said, you know, the Art Institute has had its status for 16, 17 years. And if we went this route, like this would solve all of our problems. We wouldn't have to, you know, apply for our own status. We could just be, we'd just be a support organization of mm-hmm. this institute. But they said, but we really want then the institute to run everything. And so there was... A big pause on my part because I realized what that was going to mean. And well, you go um, from a ninety thousand dollar in revenue nonprofit to one that's to running Sunset running Center, running this right. entire property. Right? Yeah, so it was um, it was a very scary moment, but I was at a point where I had felt like there were some things that maybe weren't being done really according to her wishes, and I felt like if I did not take up that opportunity that it may not continue towards what her vision was. And so I said, yes. And I will say there's a, for anybody that knows anything that happened at sunset, essentially we had to have all the artists that had galleries, they had to leave sunset. Um, and I will stand by that. I don't think that was probably the best route that we could have gone. I wish there had been a better opportunity Um, And looking back, I think there probably were, but sometimes you don't know. I mean, there's a lot of legality with things, and I wish I could go back and do that differently. But I will say I had some really good conversations with the gallery owners, and several of them actually will be returning when Sunset reopens. So um, I hope that kind of gives the spread. And so what happened after that was essentially we had to figure out what to do with the building. I mean, the building was 60 years old, had been patched and patched and patched, had a roof that was leaking, electrical bills were $18,000 a month, and we had to figure out what to do yeah, with Yeah, I mean, like, before Anne's death, it was pretty much losing money yes. regularly, and right. she was just making it work because it was a passion project for Correct. her. Correct, yeah. And so you inherited then, as a director of the Amarillo Art Institute, a building that was in need of a lot of either upkeep or repairs, or like, let's let's just slap, you know, <laughs> let's let's put white paint on this thing that we've started and start over, right? Right, exactly. Um, okay, so the the last few years then have seen a lot of construction there. So tell me a little bit about maybe what the initial vision was and, yeah. and sort of where we've ended up. So I think the main goal was to get the building to a point of sustainability, so that we didn't have to do this in another ten years because we just patched things, and so. Really, a lot of the work that's been done on the building is not visible because it's having new sewer lines, new HVAC units, all new ducting, all new electrical 
Um, because even as much as you want it to be the Ritz-Carlton and look pretty, it doesn't matter if the building's yeah. not sustainable. So that was goal number one. And all that stuff is really expensive. That's the most expensive stuff. not very stuff. sexy. Yes. Like, you're not going to be able to see, That's oh, so look true. at this, that nice duct work. Yes. Look at the roof. Oh, you can't see the yeah. roof. Um, yeah. So that was step number one. And then the secondary step was to figure out how to create the most functional space for the arts. And kind of going, both of those cost a lot of money. And so one of the things that we ended up doing, um, Sunset is about 340,000 square feet. So we actually sold the JCPenney's building to Emerald College to be used for their first responders academy. Okay. We decided that really wasn't something that we had a plan for. It's two stories. It's 100,000 square feet. And then the remaining part of the building, there was an area that was in such poor disrepair, it made the most sense just to tear that part down. Um, so we tore down a little bit of it. And then another section of it, our architects had this brilliant idea. And that's well, Playa Design This group, is Playa right? Design. Mm -hmm. They had this brilliant idea. They wanted to keep the footprint of the mall as close as possible. So they said, what if we just skin everything down to the metal studs and we make an outdoor event space? which seemed crazy at the time. And they were like, we put a stage in there. You could have performances, concerts. Had no idea at the time that we would end up getting to partner with the friends of AJ Swope um, and get to name the stage after AJ, and which has just been something that sort of fell in our lap and is the most serendipitous mm -hmm. thing that could have happened to us. Um, and so that was fortunate. So now we don't have a space that we have to heat and cool but it still looks like sunset. It still has the presence of sunset. And then the remainder part of the interior of the building got restructured. So the Emerald Art Institute is still in the same location. It just ended up with some nice, nicer walls and windows <laughs> and that kind of thing, some skylights. And then we have um, multiple gallery spaces. And then we shifted our structure to model after some other art centers on the East Coast that we had visited and instead of having private galleries, we now have private working artist studios. So they're a little bit smaller. They're really primarily for working out of. And then we have public gallery space where studio artists, but also any artist that is interested in having their artwork shown and sold can have a space. Okay. So that's kind of what it looks like. What's the timeline right now for some of the next steps? I know that with any construction project, weather and all kinds of things can get in the way. Um, I'm sure the last couple of years you've seen some of the supply chain stuff. So I, I know that that's all like very intangible, mm -hmm. but like what will the next year look like? So this year, everything will be completed. We, um, in January, we started back our classes. So our school had to sort of be ready. We had been holding classes for the past two years in uh, the temporary location, which is in Sunset in the event room. Um, and we just kind of reached a point where we were like, we just got to get this going. We got to kind of push, push, push. So we did. And so the school is pretty much almost completely finished. We have some baseboards to put up, okay. essentially. And so now they're working out in the rest of the mall. And we are hoping, looking, praying, whatnot. Um, we are looking at doing our reopening April 14th. Okay. So it's pretty close. It's close. Uh, the two last two years are finally coming to a head, and we're actually going to get to show it off to everybody. So um, it's, it's really exciting. It's very exciting. Do you have commitments from like some of the previous artists that a lot of those 
either the galleries or the working studios will be filled when you're able to open? Yeah. So our studio process got a little bit tougher. So one of the issues at Sunset was that people would often come out and galleries would be closed. So we didn't want that to happen. We want people to have field trips. We want to have tourists. Um, So we did a pretty extensive application and interview process. And our, our tenants for our studios are really a resident artist program. I mean, they are there to support the organization and we're here to support them. Um, So about half, we just had a meet and greet, about half of them had galleries at sunset. There's probably a quarter of them that are completely new. Like we have never done anything really with them before. And then the other quarter um, have some kind of connection to sunset. They were involved in the Panhandle Art Center. They've been involved with the Institute. So that's really cool. And then um, for our community gallery, we've just done the call to artists just recently. And I think we have 45 interested and a lot of them are people who were at sunset before. So when all the artists left, I met with almost every single one of them and I tried to express to them, you know, we want you back. We do yeah. want you guys to come back. We do value you. Um, and I think I think that's happened with a lot of them. So I think they'll see the value with the reopening that it has become something not only more sustainable, but but maybe better yeah. uh, than what they had at the beginning. I think that a lot of people were concerned that Anne's vision was not going to happen. And I don't blame them. I, we're all, you know, critical of people, new people coming in and yeah. doing things. Um, one of the things that I stand by and look at quite frequently is in her will, though there wasn't a whole lot written about Sunset, she she has a statement in there, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it correctly, but it does say something to the effect of, I know what I'm asking is hard. But I hope you can find a way to make it do. Yeah. Make 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 it happen. Like she didn't know exactly what it was gonna look like. She didn't know how the future was gonna play out. And she she knew it was gonna be a hard thing. And so I hope that I hope that everyone kind of sees that and sees that we put a lot of hard work into this to try to make it as functional and uh, and really be what our artists need and what the community needs for, you know, being able to experience art. Yeah, so one one of the biggest community experiences out there was the Art Walk, mm-hmm. uh, which I know a lot of people, once they hear, okay, Sunset Center is reopening, are we going to do this again? Yeah. Um, what's the answer to that? Yes. Okay. The answer is yes, yeah. As a matter of fact, once we reopen, we'll start First Fridays immediately. So um, we miss it. I mean, it was one of the great opportunities for us to connect with all of our artists it was a great recruitment tool whenever we wanted people to join classes and workshops. Um, so I, I think it's essential for us to operate. We have to have it. Okay. I want to think broader now beyond Sunset. Because Amarillo is such a community that is attached to the arts, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's it's through performance arts like the symphony, more guerrilla-style art, you know, that, that Stanley Marsh put in place, and Dynamite Museum, and then, like, traditional artists. And, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about maybe the role that you see Sunset playing mm-hmm. going into the future. You know, as, as Amarillo continues to embrace that arts culture, uh, you know, we're bringing in big-name muralists now for organizations like Hoodoo. And so I anticipate that growing. Like, what role do you want Sunset to play? So I think one of our biggest goals for Sunset was to really become more of a community center than it had ever been before. And what I mean by that is a place where people come together to collaborate. And 
a lot of what those individual organizations are missing is space. They they don't mm-hmm. have a space to come together and do collaboration. So, you know, you may have the symphony. I mean, we've talked multiple times about how to maybe partner together on kids camps so that our kids are painting what they're playing and, you know, vice versa. And so those things sometimes just need a space to come and do that in. So I'm hoping that that's really what it becomes. I've had several conversations with Hoodoo, and uh, I served on their board last year, and it's it's such a fantastic organization. And so figuring out how we support those organizations mm-hmm. with the building that we have. And I think that's really – it's honestly what Anne did. A lot of people didn't know, but, I mean – there are some large, large event spaces in there that she would just donate to nonprofits to use for their different events. Now, we do have to be revenue producing, so we do charge, but we have a significantly lower nonprofit rate. So being a space that the arts organizations that are having events want to to come and have a space. So we do a lot of outreach. We do a lot of community programs. We love other organizations. I mean, there's plenty of fish in the pond for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think any time that an arts organization is lifted up, it lifts up the arts as a whole. But yeah, I think we just want to help support that and be a connector for people. Last question I want to ask. Uh, you are in a unique position in that you came to Amarillo to work in the nonprofit world and to work in the art world. And being sort of a newcomer, at least to the city in, in those capacities, I wonder what you've learned about Amarillo and Amarillo people, about the culture itself, working like you do, um, directing an organization and it being an organization that's so intimately connected to the arts culture? That's a good question. What does it teach you about maybe the the spirit of the city or the culture of the city? I think that, I think people in general are really surprised when they find out we have such a phenomenal arts community. Um, the fact that we are the size of city that we are and have an opera and a symphony and a community theater and, 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 I mean, it's amazing. What I think I will say surprised me was how many citizens care about the arts and attend those plays and those concerts. And uh, from a nonprofit perspective, I mean, that's essential because those are your donors. Those are your people that see the value in what you do and want you to keep doing what you do. Um, I think one of the things that has been interesting to me is that you see a lot of the same people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to ALT and you see people at the theater that come to my event that also go to the Museum of Art. And again, like that community of people just supporting each other and and supporting the arts and telling their friends and getting their family to come. I mean, that that's so important. And I don't know that a lot of cities our size have that. Um, so I've been really impressed by, by that support. This week's episode is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since their teeth came in. My son, Owen, You know, when he was home from college on winter break, he went to the dentist, uh, had an appointment there at Shimon Dental. Dr. Sauer is also a national speaker on Invisalign, using that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. And I appreciate that we have that kind of expertise here in Amarillo. You can learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E 
M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with Rachel Flores. Rachel, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a series of photographs from Panhandle rancher Monty Ritchie, who in 1950 traveled to Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic as the photographer for a pioneering scientific expedition. And so you can see those photos of science being done in the 1950s in this like icy landscape. They're really cool. Those digital photos are uh, visible at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, and this is broad view, the city itself, what do you hope for? So in 10 years, I will have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. So I think... That puts it into perspective. It does, yes. So I think one of the areas that I I hope we really progress on is how uh, focused we are on the environment. And so I hope that Amarillo takes a few more strides on, you know, recycling and really encouraging that uh, the citizens to be a little more mindful about trash and how we dispose because our, our kids are going to grow up in this. I know your kids are a little bit older, but um, we want them to like continue to live in this world and get to enjoy everything. So I hope we make a lot more progress in that. I know the discussions are happening. There yes. are conversations taking place. And that's, that's true. See, I'm, I'm doing something that's possible. That's right. So. That's right. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? That's hard. Um, I'm going to say something that sounds really silly. I'm going to say car washes because I never get a car wash and I don't understand these people that are going every day to get car washes. So yeah, no offense. Are you a no, car washer? Not, okay. Okay. But I, I have family members who are, Yeah. um, I didn't grow up regularly washing my car. My parents didn't. Um, but then there are people that it's will true. buy the uh, the club membership and That's you know true. go all the time, and I understand it because their this cars is a look place a lot nicer than mine. Cars so. get dirty here. <laughs> That's true. Um, all it takes is a snowstorm or some rain followed by wind, and That's you know. Right. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is based on how you grew up or what things you know you yes. value. Or- I think my dad would highly disagree because he very much values the way a car looks. Mm-hmm. And so that's important. It's just not to me. Yeah. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Okay. I feel like this is a repeat from the first answer, but I think we need more recycling options. Like we need more ways for us to dispose of things in the right way. We don't really have anything. We don't. And from what I understand of the issue, it's an economic thing. Yep. That if, if we had facilities here to recycle, then that would be one thing. Right. If we are bundling it up and shipping, you know, all of our cardboard or plastic mm-hmm. or whatever to Oklahoma City, then the environmental impact is worse than if we were to just throw it away. Correct. Yep. That's um, true. And so that's that's where our isolation kind yeah. of mm-hmm. uh, kind of shoots ourselves in the foot. Yep. I gotcha. Hopefully, though. Maybe. Hopefully, though, there's, there's some change coming. I can still coming. say we need it. I know. We definitely need it. We just need like a, a large pot of government money That's to great. put those facilities yeah. in. When you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? I think I'd probably just talk about the people. I feel like people are really kind and welcoming. And I mean, I just feel like I know it's a lot of the Texas thing, but anywhere you go, people are smiling at you and saying hello to you. And I think I think that's pretty awesome. I mean... I've been I've heard that when people go to other countries, sometimes that's a weird thing that Mm -hmm. you shouldn't smile at people. But I love that I can go to my grocery store. I know my cashier that I pretty much have every 
week at the grocery store. Like, I love that we have a, I know when her birthday is the same day as my daughter's, we have conversations about it. Like, that's lovely that we can have relationships with strangers. And yeah, I think that's cool. Okay. What's your favorite local neighborhood? I think I'm going to say Bivens or Sunset Terrace. I had an aunt that lived in Sunset Terrace, so I have very fond memories of going trick-or-treating. In Bushland, you don't know where to trick-or-treat. Mm-hmm. Um, I tripped over a few sidewalks over there, but uh, I love it. It's not all huge houses, you know, but they have some really funky, quirky houses. Um, it just has life. I like it. Yeah. they yeah. Both are eclectic neighborhoods. Yep. I like Sunset Terrace because the Amarillo architect Guy Carlander was one of the developers there. Mm. And so... A lot of the houses he designed are in that neighborhood. That's cool. Um, and so he, you know, is is as big a part of the way that a lot of the buildings in this area look as, as anybody else. And so it's it's interesting to go there and to see the unique architecture and to yeah. think, okay, that's why. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? That's so easy. My favorite restaurant is Indian Oven. Okay. I love Indian food and it's my favorite. So anytime, birthday, you know where to take me. That's my favorite. That was my big concern uh, around when the pandemic started was that Indian Oven would not return its buffet. <laughs> I was like, that would be the worst thing. That would be the worst thing. And then it went in and out. And yeah. I was like, no, 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 you have to bring it back. We were, we were during the pandemic, we were like, we got to order as much as possible. We got to keep this restaurant afloat. It's my yeah. babe. When, and pretty much the original yeah. Indian restaurant here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I know you're involved with Hoodoo. Maybe you can't say, but what's your favorite local mural? Actually, this one's easy, and I'm kind of cheating, but we have a mural on, on at Arts in the Sunset. We have uh, Malcolm Byers did it. We got a matching grant from the city to do it, and it is a mural that has two owls on it, so just for people to know. Ann Crouch was a wildlife rehabilitator, and she primarily did wildlife birds, mm-hmm. and Looking through a lot of her permanent collection pieces that she made, uh, there were several that had drawings, sketchings of barn owls. And so when I met with Malcolm and we were going through ideas, I was like, I'd really like to have a presence of her without having her portrait be on the side yeah. of the building. She probably wouldn't want her uh, portrait Probably not. No, she would not like that at all. Um, and so we thought, well, let's do the owls. And so they're actually looking at both of the future entrance points. And then we had... Uh, There's a combination of traditional and contemporary done flowers. And so it's kind of the marriage of like we're a place for everyone, whether you're older and you want more traditional stuff or you, you know, want modern contemporary things. So it's one of my favorite. I I mean, obviously, I like it because I had a a lot. It's fantastic. mural. I'm glad it was part of the mural art project. The city does. Um, Okay, last question. And I gave you the art related one. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? So the funny thing about this, I mentioned I lived in between Bushland and Emerald. I lived off Hope Road, which is right next to the Cadillac okay. Ranch. So I, I would see it all so the time. So you could see it. I did not go visit it. I drove past it every day. I don't even think I went until I was in high school. But um, the last time I went, a couple of years, I'm going to say four years ago, we didn't really have enough money to go on vacation, take a big family vacation. So we did a staycation and we did all the tourist traps around Amarillo and we took our kids to the Big Cat Texan and hmm. the Discovery Center. And we, I don't even remember everything. But I remember going to the Cadillac Ranch that day. And the kids thought it was great. So that, I think that was the last time. I think people would be interested to know 
which of the Amarillo tourist things your kids really like the most? Oh, they, I think that's why I remember Ca- Cadillac Ranch and Big Texan because they both okay. they thought those were both the coolest things. All right, that's good. Yeah. Good to know. Okay, Rachel, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? I feel very cliche if I endorse any kind of art-related thing, but I am. I, it's very generic, but I'm just going to say if you have... If there is an art show, a performance, a concert, and it's a time that you can go and it's a cost that you can pay, just go. Because I think experiencing that culture, exposing your kids to it, yourself to it, and supporting artists in our community, I think is incredibly important. Okay. That's a good one. Rachel Flores, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Rachel for the interview. You can learn more about Amarillo Art Institute and the Sunset Renovation Project at artsinthesunset.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Shem and Dental and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey, Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for reviewing it on whatever platform you listen. Thank you for supporting the show. Especially, I want to thank the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 287. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>